0: If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter five. We're not going to park there all day, but we'll be there in just a moment. And as you're turning there, uh, just. Uh, we're we're going to be uh, entering into a, a new series here today on money, and I will, we'll get to that in just a minute. But um, uh, I, I wanted to begin uh, this message with uh, just a, a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, how many of you. Uh, how many of you remember what was going on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? Raise your hand if you have a working knowledge of Ezra and Nehemiah. Some of you do. OK, got to kind of put your brains to uh, uh, some thinking here today. Back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jewish people were leaving Babylon. OK, this is about the year five hundred and thirty eight B.C. And back in five thirty eight B.C., Some 50,000 Israelites left Babylon, Persia at the time, and came back to Jerusalem. They had been enslaved in Babylon for nearly a century. And now they were coming back to their land as a result of the decree of King Cyrus. And it was an exciting moment for the Jews. God's promise of restoration was at hand. They were being liberated from slavery and the future yet again looked bright for Israel. They had some high hopes. They were coming back to Jerusalem to to rebuild the temple, which had been torn down and to bring back a, a, a measure of prosperity to Israel like that in the days of King David. But as they journeyed from Babylon back to Jerusalem with high hopes of building that temple, some 20 years later, the temple still lie in ruins. They hadn't achieved their goal. They hadn't built up God's house. And it wasn't because they didn't have the resources to build. No, that wasn't it. In fact, business was booming in Israel. It wasn't a money problem. It was a priorities problem. And the prophet Haggai actually cuts to the heart of the issue. We see a little comment of it in Haggai chapter 1, verse 4. He writes, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Read Haggai. What a great book. He was a preacher, basically, in that day and age, and he was looking at the people and saying, look, you came from I came from Babylon, he said, and we've come here to build this temple and are we going to sit around in paneled houses while the temple lies in ruins? The people were hoarding their money rather than using it for God's purposes. Now thankfully, Haggai's preaching worked. Uh, His sermons were effective for a time and the Jews, they woke up and they diligently finished their temple. But then another generation went by and they were back to their lives of excess and indulgence. Of course, times of prosperity come and go. And by the middle of the 5th century BC, the Jews found themselves again in a difficult economic situation. Not even 100 years since their return to Jerusalem from Babylon, The Jews found themselves in another enslaving experience, not unlike that of Babylon. And Nehemiah chapter five details it. Take a look in your Bibles. Nehemiah chapter five. We're going to read verses one through five. Will you stand with me as we read verses one through five? Nehemiah five verses one through five. This was the economic situation of the people, a generation after building the temple again. Verse one, and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For they for there were those who said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat, that we may live. And there were also some who said, look, we've mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and our houses that we might buy grain because of the famine Verse four, there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren. Our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. And it is not in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and our vineyards. You may be seated. What a, what a peculiar passage, isn't it? Not even a uh, hundred years since leaving Babylon to go to Jerusalem, when they were living in paneled houses, no less, hadn't yet built the temple. Haggai preaches and says, build that temple. They do it. They get out of their paneled houses. They build the temple again. It's looking nice. But within a generation, they're begging for food. They're mortgaging their homes. I mean, look, look at, let's kind of outline this for a moment. I mean, we see in verse one here, there was bickering, right? Bickering among the people over money, bickering. They were fighting about it. Uh, verse two, we see that a growing percentage of the people were seeking donations of food. That's how desperate it was at that time. Verses 3 and 4, you read those and you see the people are taking out loans and mortgaging their homes to pay for basic necessities and property taxes or the king's taxes. And in verse 5, the society at large found themselves powerless in the face of mounting death. Boy, good thing we're not dealing with any of that. Wait a minute. Does that outline look familiar? I won't ask for a show of hands. Does this does what's happening in Nehemiah five uh, sound a lot like what's going on in our lives today? I have no doubt that the vast majority of you are feeling a money pinch right now. But why, right? Well, that's the question. Why why are we feeling this? What 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 is what has come about that has brought this situation upon us? I'm going to ask the question, who is to blame? Who is to blame for our money woes, right? Who is to blame for our money woes? Well, if you, if you go on the television or you read all the articles and you listen to the experts, they've got a long list of people to blame. Let's look at a few of them here, right? You've got the recession to blame. You've got high taxes. You've got government spending. You've got predatory lenders and creditors, low-paying employers, I'm supposed to save that last point, but that's all right. (laughs) I have no doubt that of those top five, all right, each of them have played a part, right? Each of them contributed to our current economic situation. But could there be another factor? Could there possibly be a sixth factor? Might there be, in your wildest imagination, something else? That is at fault here in our current economic woes. Anybody? We are. We are. You guess it. We are. We are. And I mean that. We are. We are to blame, inasmuch as others are to blame. If we do not put any of that blame on ourselves, we are missing the whole point of this point in our nation's history. Our power to effect changes in the things we'd like to blame for our economic woes pales in comparison to our power to change how we use our money. Why are we having money woes today in this country? I suggest to us that the problem is not that we're not making enough money, that that is actually the furthest from our problems. Uh, Just a few stats here. Worldwide uh, stats on money. Ready for it? a little trivia question here? Uh, What do you think is the median? Uh, global income worldwide. And I don't mean the average, the median global income worldwide. Take a guess. It's right in the middle. The, the middle person of all the 6.7 billion people in the world, the guy who's at 3.235 billion, how much is he making? All right, let's take a look. He's making $850 a year. A year. That's amazing. How about in the U.S.? What do you think the median income is in the United States of America? The middle guy? What's he making? All right. Take a look. Fifty thousand two hundred and fifty five. A little higher than I, I expected. Uh, the average is lower. The median is different. The median is the middle guy, whereas the average is the average of, of everyone divided by the total people. Um, how about this one? This is kind of interesting. Do you make uh, you say, well, I don't make 50,000. But do you make 41,000 or more? Well, guess what? Congratulations. You are among the top three income earners in the world. In the world. Congratulations. Fascinating. Um, we say, well, I don't make 41,000. OK, let's say you let's say your minimum wage in California. If your minimum wage in California. The state of California, take a look at this. You make more money during your 15-minute coffee break than three billion people do in an entire day. That's almost, not quite, but almost half the world's population. And these, you know, these are stats, and stats are stats, but it's, it's man, perspective. Perspective for a moment, right? Uh why are we having money woes in this country? Is it really are we really going to to, uh, to to list everyone else to blame and yet not look at ourselves? Are we are we gonna are, are we gonna say that if we're making forty one or fifty thousand or more that, that somehow that, that, that that's not enough? That's a difficult case to make. See the problem is we're not the problem is not that we're not making enough money. It is that we're not using the money God has entrusted to us wisely. It is that we are frivolously overextending ourselves time and time again. It is that we're spending it on things that are meaningless. It is that we are incurring an exorbitant amount of debt that is ridiculously disproportionate to our income and that rails against biblical warnings on borrowing. The problem is a lack of honor in using our money as God would have us use it. And I want to talk, uh, as you may have guessed, our, our current series now, a brand new series on money. Uh, we're going to be dealing with uh, we'll do, do three-part series here. Today, we're going to be looking at this question. Uh, well, actually, this this part in the series. More money is not the answer. Money does not bring Happiness and peace. Now, today we're not going to get significantly in depth in the scriptures, but we're going to we're going to make a case for the statement. We're going to make a case for this because we have to start here. I can't. There's no way that we could go through all the scriptures on money and have it be effective if you didn't believe that statement. So that's where we need to start, and then it's going to get a lot uh, more difficult because next week. Um, it's going to we're going to be dealing with debt and I've titled it indebted to God or in debt Two life transforming choices. And uh, I'm going to be um, making the scriptures very plain. And when you make the scriptures very plain on this matter, you're going to offend a lot of people. Um, If I were preaching to myself, I would be offended by next week's message because I have bought into some of the lies of debt. And so next week's going to be tough. I urge you to come and to hear what the Word has to say about debt. And then third and finally, we've we got to get to answers. And we got to get toward a biblical use of money. We've got to talk about giving and stewardship and using our money with honor. Paying our debts. And so uh, this is the series of, on money. Uh, it's one that uh, I've been thinking about and the elders and I have been talking about for some time now. But let's get into it today. We're going to look at part one. More money is not the answer. Money does not bring happiness and peace. Uh, Many of you know I'm a uh, I'm a big soccer fan and uh, some of you know that uh, one of the best nations in the world in the game of soccer is the nation of uh, Brazil. And I want to bring up one of their best players. His name is Neymar. Neymar. Uh, Now, I'll, I'll talk about Neymar in just a moment, but. When, you know, when the Brazilian national team, when they come together, they virtually always win. It was amazing that they didn't win the World Cup this last uh, this past uh, uh, June. Uh, but, but Brazilian fans, they've grown accustomed to winning and to seeing their national team win. Uh, but at the same time as they've been accustomed to seeing their national team win, they are equally accustomed to seeing their best and brightest soccer stars leave the country for much of the year to play in more high-profile and higher-paying soccer leagues around the world. Now, that doesn't happen really in the U.S. very much. Like, you look at the NBA, right? The NBA, we've got our dream team that we send to the Olympics, you know, the Kobe Bryants, the LeBron James. We've got the best players, and we send them out to that national championship or the Olympics as a national representative but when they're playing on their club teams or in, you know, in, their, in, their, in their league, they're here in the States. They're in the National Basketball Association. They don't go over to Europe to play basketball. They play here. It's not like that in Brazil. The Brazilian soccer players, oh, they play on their Brazilian national team. But during the year, they go over to Europe. Can you imagine that? Kobe Bryant playing in Europe. And then representing the U.S. on our national team is crazy. The the, the Brazilians, they lose out on all their best players. They ship them out to Europe, to Italy, to England, and that's where they play throughout the year. They grow up in their native countries. They play one to two years of soccer. But when they're identified as a star, they inevitably leave for triple or sometimes ten times as much money in Europe. Now, earlier this month, Brazilian fans in San Paulo learned that their new and rising star, 18-year-old Neymar, was being courted by a team from the English Premier League, Chelsea. The word on the street was that Chelsea was offering Neymar some 37 million euros or 47 million U.S. dollars to bring him to Europe. And of course... The people of Brazil knew what that meant. Another homegrown star was going to leave for the big money. But, but, just last week, on August the 20th, Brazilian soccer fans in Sao Paulo woke up to read an amazing headline in the Estado de Sao Paulo newspaper. This is what they read. So dinero, now tras Felicidade. And that means money does not equal happiness. It was a quote from Neymar hours after he had rejected $47 million from the powerhouse team of Chelsea in the English Premier League. And the Brazilian fans went crazy. The country and and the city of Sao Paulo, they were ecstatic for once, one of their stars had said no to the money. And in, when, when asked by reporters, why did you say no? He turned to the reporter and said, money does not equal happiness. 18 years old. Now, for a pastor preparing a message on the idea that money does not bring happiness, this story was a gold mine. I was ecstatic when I read this and I gave myself a congratulatory pat on the back for my renowned Google search skills. It was amazing. But then, then I continued searching. Uh, And wouldn't you know it, just a few days after this story broke, Neymar's agent confirmed that they were still in talks with Chelsea about a possible signing. Apparently, Chelsea was prepared to bring even more money to the table. And the morning after his agent's statement, rumor has it that the Brazilians woke up to read a new headline from their beloved star Neymar. This time it read, Money does not equal happiness unless, of course, Chelsea offers me an additional 15 million. million." Sermon illustration ruined! I was about to stick this kid's poster up on my wall and root for Brazil in the 2014 World Cup, but alas, now I feel betrayed. I feel deceived. And guess what? That is exactly what money does. It deceives you. Write this on your outline if you have it. Seeking riches, friends, seeking riches may seem like a worthwhile goal, but it is ultimately a deceptive path that chokes our God-given potential. It may appear worthwhile. You may look at riches and money and you may think, wow, what a great objective, what a great goal. I'm going to get as much of it as I can. But ultimately, it is a deceptive path that chokes our God-given potential. Jesus spoke of this. He talked about the seed of the Word of God going out and it being choked by something. Notice what He says. Jesus says this in Mark 4, And some seed, this is the Word of God going out, some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and it choked it, and it yielded no crop. He goes on to explain in verse 18, Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the Word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness... Of riches. And the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. It, it chokes us. It lures us in and, and and sucks the life right out of us. That's what riches do when we desire them. This young soccer star Neymar, he he flip flopped in a week, in a matter of days. Because money talks. It is deceptive. And just when you think you have a handle on it, it lures you in for more. What does that tell us? That tells us that we're never going to be satisfied by it. We're never going to be satisfied by it. In fact, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, one of my all-time favorite Bible passages, Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes 5. He says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Notice this. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. I remember years ago, I heard uh, my elder chairman, Glenn Eichler, uh, he once said this about money. He said, you will find a way to spend the extra money you earn. Remember that? Let me say that again. You will find a way to spend the extra money you earn. It's true. We do find ways to just fritter away any increase in money we receive. And that's exactly what Solomon says elsewhere in the book of Proverbs. Notice what he says in Proverbs. (coughs) Excuse me. Oh, I'm so sorry. I I missed that. And so, (laughs) the riches that we think are enough they are never enough. Write that on your outline. The riches that we think are going to be sufficient are never sufficient. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you will find a way to spend spend away the extra money that you earn? Solomon says this in Proverbs 23. Notice what he says. He says this, do not be do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding, cease, avoid that. Will you set your eyes on that which is not for riches? Notice what he says of them. Certainly they make themselves wings and they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. And then we find ourselves right back where we started needing more of it. So what good is making more money? If we make more, we inevitably end up spending it. We find a way to spend it, though we say we won't. And the money that we do earn, the, 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 the riches that we do make, well, as we spend it and fritter it away, they, they, they fly off. They create wings and fly off toward this, the heavens. Jesus was very, very clear. He gave, he gave some straight talk about wealth. And, uh, and it's compelling. And it's. Uh, Jesus is so compact in this statement. It's familiar, but read it again for the first time. Matthew 6, verse 24. Jesus writes, No one, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man or money. Jesus says, look, it's, it's one or the other, friends. It's one or the other. It cannot be both. This is not to say that a Christian cannot be wealthy. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that you are either devoted to God or you are devoted to becoming rich. Because you cannot have it both ways. You are either devoted to God or you are devoted to becoming rich. And so I ask you, which are you? Which are you? Are you devoted to God or are you utterly focused on becoming wealthy, rich, doing whatever it takes to make a profit? Jesus has, uh, Jesus really measures your spirituality by this one. He really measures your commitment to Him by, by this principle. Now, some of you might be thinking, "Well, Neil, I'm look. I'm not. I'm not desperate for riches. I'm not devoted to becoming wealthy. But I, I'm. I'm just worried. I'm worried about money. Uh, the world is a scary place right now. I'm worried about my home. I'm worried about paying the bills. I'm worried about putting food on the plate. I don't. I don't need riches. I'm not. I'm not devoted to riches, but." man, I sure could use some extra money right now. I think a lot of us are in that boat, right? Maybe, maybe a, a percentage of us are really devoted to riches and we need to pay heed to Jesus' words, but a, a good portion of us are saying, look, I, I don't need wealth. I'm not going to shoot for that. That's not my goal, but I just want to pay the bills and I need a little more right now. I understand that worry. Um, I often have that worry. That's, it's something that I fight back often myself. And I think the words of our Lord right after Jesus' words in Matthew 6:24, the words of our Lord there are more apropos now than ever. And this is what He says, Matthew 6:25 to 30. Therefore, Jesus says, "I say to you, do not worry about your life. Don't worry what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I have a bold prediction. God is going to take care of you. He is. God is going to take care of you. You don't need to worry. The anxiety that you felt this last week, this last year, these last three years, of that darn government spending and high taxes and all the recession, all that anxiety, send it away by the knowledge of what Jesus says to you here. He will take care of you. He will. Do you believe that? Grab a Bible and turn to Matt. Psalm 37. I didn't put this on the screen. Psalm 37. Lyle Williams spoke yesterday, last uh, Sunday. I appreciated my friend coming to share with you, and I know, I know he blessed many with his words. Uh, I wanted to share with you one of his favorite verses. Psalm 37. Verse 25 and 26. Psalm 37, verse 25 and 26. This is one of my, one of my personal uh, mentors in the faith. And this is what he has imparted to me. He says, uh, this is his favorite verse. David writes, I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends. And his descendants are blessed. What a a great verse. What a great promise. What a great hope. And David saw a lot. And yet he never saw that. He never saw God's people forsaken. Paul reminded us in Philippians 4 that, that our God will supply all our needs in Christ Jesus. All of them. And as we as we try to cling to the hope of God's provision, it is times like these that we need to consider something about that provision. And again, this isn't on the slide behind you because I I added it late to our outline, but it was a a principle that's really impressed me um, a lot recently. And that is this. Note this on your outline. God's provision for us might not be the kind of provision we were hoping for. Let me say that again. God's provision for us might not be the kind of provision we were hoping for. And you know what? The Scriptures ask us to be content with that. We, we, know, we know we're promised provision. Okay, We see that in Psalm 37. We see that in Matthew 6. We know God promises provision. And then we look at our lives and we think, but this isn't provision. I submit to you that it, it is, actually. It is provision. The darkest, most difficult hardship you have been through financially, economically. That the moment where you looked up to God and said, where are you? In that moment, God was providing for you. And we didn't even recognize it. Do we need more money right now? Maybe. Maybe. But I believe the Bible urges us to earnestly seek something else first. And this is our resolution today. This is what we need to resolve as a people today. It is this. Before I consider whether it is necessary to provide my family with more money, I will first impart to them a biblical view of contentment. Before I consider, before I even think about the need or whether it's even a necessity at all to provide my family with more money. I will first of the first importance, I will teach my family and I will teach myself a biblical view of contentment. And what is a biblical view of contentment? Paul speaks of it in 1 Timothy 6. What beautiful words here. He says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And, notice this, having food and having clothing, with these we shall be content. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Content. Can you say that about yourself? That if you were reduced to having just three squares a day and the clothing on your back, would you be content with that? Would you be able to praise God for the provision if that day came for his provision? Can you say this of your family? Because I'll tell you, friends, um, I can't tell you how much more I'm personally seeing this today. Uh, As one, as a pastor and those who work in the office, uh, we have the privilege uh, occasionally of people coming to our church door during the week and sometimes on Sundays, but usually it's midweek. And people walk and knock on our door and come in, and they are homeless, and they are hurting, and they are in need of help. And uh, it's it's been interesting to me. It's been fascinating, really. Our church has seen more homeless and hurting people come to our door this year than in the past four years combined. It wasn't but four weeks ago that an older couple came to the church door. They were in their late 70s and they were nicely dressed. But as I talked with the man, I came to learn that uh, they had come on very hard times. The wife's medical costs had risen. Other emergency expenses had come their way. And uh, in a matter of weeks, they had lost their apartment and a storage unit with virtually all of their possessions. By the time they had come to Coast, they had been sleeping in their car for the last two weeks. An older couple in their late 70s, nicely dressed, just four weeks, two weeks ago living in a, a little apartment in Laguna Hills. The money that you give, by the way, the money that you give each month to the Benevolent Fund, uh, that helped us put that precious couple up in a motel that night where they can get a shower and a good night's rest. The man offered to write me a check. Uh, he had written it out and he had given it to me and he said, I, you know, I don't want to take any charity and I want you to cash this when uh, the Social Security check came in later that month. And I, I said, no, it's okay. This is the least we can do is put you up for the night. I will say that only by God's grace are you and I not in that boat today. And that's the truth. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's a peculiar statement. Moses writes But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. The ability. Were it not for God's provision, you would not have a house were it not for God's provision, you would not have food. You would not have clothing on your back. He gives us the ability to produce wealth. Far be it from us to think that we've brought that to, upon ourselves. Far be it from us to think that our wisdom, our know-how, has accumulated that wealth. It's His blessing. Period. Praise God that we have a church family behind us. That God forbid that we ourselves find ourselves uh, in that same boat as that older couple. That there are, I know, dozens of families here who would not hesitate to take us into their homes. Do you know that? If you lose your home, if you find yourself in a hopeless situation, there are many, many families right here who would not think twice about letting you stay with them for an indefinite period of time. And I want you to know that. The other couple, the the couple who came to my door, they didn't have that. They didn't have that support. They didn't have that family behind them. You do. And I want you to talk to me if you come upon that situation. I want you to talk to the elders. Because I can assure you, you won't go a night without a roof over your head and food on your plate. But the question is, if that day came, would you still be content? Would you still be content? Would you be able to look at Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6 and say, with food and with clothing, I will be content? Paul has... A final thought in Philippians 4 that I wanted to read to you and I I hope this can be a a prayer for you and for your family. He writes this in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That should be our prayer, friends. Right there. That should be our prayer. And, uh, you know, we're, we're beginning. Uh, uh, we're, we're just finishing up now. First part on money. And today's message uh, was simple. There's nothing complex. But a, a, a point that, that so many of us are missing. I want it to be said with indelibly clear words. Money is not the answer. It is not the answer. It will not buy you happiness. It will not buy you peace. Nothing will come of an incessant desire for more money. It's not what's going to bring what you're looking for. And we need to start there as we then go back and assess how are we now using it. Are we indebted to God or are we in debt? And what does that have? What what implications does that have on our life? Are we using our money in a biblical way, with stewardship, with honor? Are we giving? But before we get to any of those, we need to resolve today that we know assuredly money is not what I'm looking for. Riches are not what I'm looking for. Can you say that today? Can you resolve in your family today? That before you seek out one extra dime, you will first impart to them a biblical view of contentment. Because I'll tell you, we might be coming on some hard times. We already are in a good measure of it. And the scriptures, you read Revelation, boy, uh, there's going to be a little bit of inflation later on. Just a little bit. A wheelbarrow full to buy a, a, a piece of bread. Whether that day comes in our generation or whether it comes many generations down, are you going to be content if you were to see that day? Content with the food on your plate and the clothes on your back. Let's ask God for that peace and that contentment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, money is so deceptive. Not a day goes by that we're not lured by it, Father, that we're not brought in by its temptation. But Lord, we know by your word that riches, that the desire for riches is not a healthy desire. Neither is it a spiritual desire. Father, you've asked us, your son has asked us to serve you and not men and that we can't be devoted to both. And so, Father, help us as a people to be devoted to you and to reject the lie that money brings happiness, because it doesn't. Father, as we settle that matter in our hearts today, may it prepare us for some more difficult talk on debt, on how you would have us use our money, Lord. Help us to be moldable and pliable. Help us, Father, to just have open hearts as we consider what your word has to say about this very important topic